0: Let's hear it for Mr. Kevin Healy.
1: A week, Jan, listener, when things are getting more urgent by the day. No, no, not the coronavirus problem, the profit virus problem, as the great practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all advise the other virus has been kept pretty much under control thanks to lockdown and distancing. So now we can relax the rules. Uh, so there's no danger of catching the disease, we asked one of the expert experts, our old mate Innes Will cost the workers of the was wazi industry profits group. Not as dangerous as the dangers of catching the profits virus which prevents us doing that for which we exist. Finding good paying jobs, lazy, avaricious workers, And in order to provide those jobs, the D is up with some brilliantly innovative ideas, all of which involve flexibility, of course, because caring employers, indeed, all the experts who truly understand the greatest little economic order know flexibility is the key to providing those jobs. Brilliant suggestions like allowing themselves the flexibility to change awards without having to consult those workers, or that inflexible barrier flexibility, the evil unions. Innes' group has thrown that one up, and that ever insightful flexible mind from the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs on Rustcan has offered one solution guaranteed to make life so much better for workers. Abolish awards altogether for small business. Let the caring employers determine the wages and conditions. Well, it won't make much difference, many of them already do, because the lower the wages and the fewer the conditions, the more chance of more people being wage slaves, or sorry, no, employed. And big, big caring employer, filthy rich ain't hard goiter, and here's a man who knows what he's talking about, he chairs the board of the airline that used to be our airline, and hasn't this crisis shown just how more efficient is the private sector over the sclerotic public sector? And he's on the Woodside Fossils Board and he chairs the AFL, a great man. Well, Filthy Rich Ain't Hard asked on the ABC whether reviving the virus-struck patient would involve overcoming that problem caring employers have so complained about for years, stagnant wage growth, which they just can't seem to solve, try as they might, because they so want workers to be much more highly paid if only they could. After getting his breath back, poor filthy rich as said the important thing was to get the economy up and running again, get people back to work and then, then, out there somewhere in the when the economy has picked up, when productivity has improved, when, well, all the reasons they couldn't pay workers before the virus are all the reasons they can't pay workers during the virus that Workers do have the promise of future land, a future of productivity and flexibility. Uh, but going back to normal, Filthy Rich 8, we asked, aren't you concerned you might catch the other virus, the health one? Thankfully, Filthy Rich 8, we'll be making our invaluable and, might I say, largely unappreciated contribution to the common good, to the Commonwealth by continuing to meet in our online boardrooms, Uh, so the workers will be at risk. Ignoring the fact that the boardroom is where the real work is done, uh, are you suggesting workers should be so inflexible, so inconsiderate of the common good, that they put the health of the whole economy at risk? Well, what can we say when he puts it so sensibly? I guess that's why we need great humanitarians like Filthy Rich to run the economy for us, except when something goes wrong and they need the government to preserve it for them. From those prepared to work their guts out in the boardrooms, albeit teleconference boardrooms at the moment, to those who will bludge on the public purse. Well, good news for the economy, they'll only be able to half-bludge before long. Big economic guru Josh Friedman Iceberg said the doll would have to return to the level on which doll budgets have been whooping it up for years when the time limit for the increased doll runs out. There is no money tree, he said. Oh, hang on, hang on. 132 billion to pay the boss's wages bill. Billions and billions more for other handouts for the caring business class. So no, no, he's right. There's no money tree. Now, I must be critical of those people who would question the word of two great international leaders, U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the World Big Supremo Donald Trample the Poor and his Secretary for World State Mike Pompeo or else, who has significant proof that the virus emanated from a Wuhan laboratory and was deliberately unleashed on the world, on liberty, freedom and democracy, sadly by many thousands of evil China's own citizens dead. Are those questioning, suggesting great men like Donald and Mike would not tell the truth? We can expect the significant proof, this proof ever, ever, to be released any day now. Ask when it would be released, Donald was thoughtful. We'll see, we'll see. Donald keeps blaming his predecessor, Barack Obama, for any problems that might arise because No one has anything to do with Donald, although naturally Donald himself, self-awarding himself, Nobel Peace Prize, doesn't criticise the peace credentials of his Nobel Peace Laureate predecessor, slaughtering thousands, wedding parties, and other threats to liberty, freedom, and democracy, murdered across the globe with the push of a button in the bowels of the Pentagon, proving war is peace. But for those areas where Donald has attacked him, Obama responded. Donald's response to COVID-19 was absolute chaotic disaster. Where would that come from? Talk about envy, uh, which would be the only thing green about either of them. No, take that back, just a silly unsubstantiated thought. It's only because of the coronavirus that Donald has been forced to lift all environmental controls on the great US resource industry, allowing it stroke them to treat the environment as they see fit. After all, Donald, with his normal, balanced consideration, tells us every time the environment gets a mention that thanks to him, the U.S. of has the cleanest air and water in the whole world. Cleanest ever, ever. But I've gone off on all sorts of tangents, Obama's attack. Again, Donald responded with that normal, balanced consideration without a hint of hyperbole. I have saved thousands of lives. He stuck it up, Obama. Except the eighty thousand and growing who have died must be their own fault. that Donald didn't save them. They they didn't want to be apparently saved. Or maybe Donald knows they died because of Barack Obama. While on great minds, the my word you thought that one through all of the week to a ward of the week to a bloke charged with lots of drugs and cash in a stolen car who has to report to the. <coughs> sorry, um, constabulary, is a bail condition. Well, brilliant. He turned up at the cop shop the other day and parked in a no parking zone out the front, immediately drawing attention to the car, which just happened to be stolen and loaded with lots of drugs and cash. He is a former train killer who train killed in Afghanistan. That may explain something, but at least he could have parked the car legally. And still on great minds, the minister for keeping us secure via concentration camps, razor wire, and sink the boats, Constable Peter Duffer, entered the discussion around the need to preserve the health of the economy over the health of the community, and told us the reopening of the economy should be in a graduated way. Like, no idea from where Constable Duffer graduated or or didn't, other than the mind-stretching challenge of a oh, so, sorry police academy. Academy and police is pretty close to an oxymoron, I would have thought. Anyway, should be in a graduated way, Pete said. Uh, I rather think he meant gradual-like. Heard an interview this week with a bloke described the head of sustainability at Transfer the Profits Urban, telling us that our purpose, meaning the company, is to provide transport benefits for the community. What selfless altruism like ramming up its toll rates in the middle of a pandemic the bloke was telling us how transfer the profits urban was so committed to the environment which it displays by urging as many trucks and cars a day as possible to spew their pollution into the environment to which it is so committed which in turn spews as much ever increasing profits into its coffers coffers and coffins a direct relationship you'd think people who run a public road system for their private profit, requiring them to get as many polluters on the road as possible, would at least have the decency to shut up about their environmental credentials, which are somewhere deep in miners' territory. Speaking of coppers and coffins, Big Supremo scuttled their more last Sunday, in announcing the three-step program to get the greatest little economic order back on its feet, said there could be further outbreaks and more coffins as we attempt to fill the private coffins. Uh, I scuttle them, you're saying we can now relax because the steps we've taken, including isolation and distancing, have reduced the impact substantially. Exactly. Now the economy, you mean the caring business class. Let me finish. Now the caring business class can benefit from the sacrifices people have made, and I am proud of those people. Uh, But you're saying many of those people you're so proud of may now die when we stop practicing that which has saved many lives. To be honest, I wouldn't expect too many more people to die than if we maintain the policies which have so devastated the economy. Well, he's a committed Christian. He knows if they're good, they'll go straight to heaven and be better off. Coffers and coffins. So Donald wants to lift all restrictions so the caring business class can get back to normal while the coffin bills are soaring, or the coffin, yes, bits are soaring. Why hurt our great economy, greatest economy ever, if people are going to die anyway? That's it, balance, coffers and coffins. Good afternoon.
0: Another week gone with Mr. Kevin Healy. 3CR Community Radio,
2: 855 a.m.
0: This Friday, the 15th of May, is the second anniversary of al-Nakbar, Arabic for the catastrophe, the beginning of Palestinian dispossession that continues to this day. There are a number of online events hosted by Palestinian community and solidarity groups around Australia surrounding the May 15 date. To find out the details and also what al nakba means for her, I spoke with Nura. Mount Sewer yesterday, and began by asking her about her families and their experiences of those terrible days in 1948, when an estimated 700,000 Palestinians fled or were expelled and hundreds of Palestinian towns and villages depopulated and destroyed.
2: My family originally is an internally displaced family uh, in Palestine 1948, which is the territories that were occupied and colonized in 1948. I was born in Akka. however, both of my parents are not originally from Aska, They're both, both of their families are from uh, towns and villages that were demolished and destroyed during the Nakba. So my father's family, for example, is from Safad, it's in the upper Galilee, and now it's predominantly, basically almost 100% of all of its uh, residents are Jewish. Uh, no Arabs are allowed or no Palestinians are allowed to live in Safad anymore. And my mother's family is from Shab, so that's another uh, small village in the Galilee uh, that was completely destroyed during the Nakba, but was rebuilt later on. And, um, yes, yeah, so as I said, I'm uh, one of those uh, people whose families were directly affected by the Nakba, and they had to leave their towns and, and, uh, and villages. And where did they go to? My mother's family, as they were leaving Shaab, their village in the Galilee, initially they left, they went to Haifa, and then they ended up in Naka, It's Acre City, which is a coastal city in the north. So as they were forcefully evicted from their homes, I remember one of the stories that my grandmother, I always tell this story because it's, um, for me, as as a woman, it's it's very, um, I find that just terrifying. She was telling me how they were, as they were leaving their homes, uh, they were forced to leave their homes. Uh, Her mother, she took dirt and mud from the soil, from the ground, and she put it on her face and on her sister's face. And that was basically to make her look less attractive and uh, to protect her from being a target or a victim of rape, because this was uh, also one of the um, crimes that the Zionist militias uh, were committing at that time, as also documented not not only by Palestinian historians or pro-Palestinian historians such as uh, Ilan Pape, but also by Zionist historians such as uh, Benny Morris.
0: And have your relatives, 70 years later, different parts of the world now that's dispersed around the world. Is that yes.
2: correct? That is correct. So so part of my family, actually, during the Nakba, a part of the family was pushed. Uh, they were basically loaded on trucks and boats, and they were either pushed into the ocean. Uh, another part of my family was pushed into Lebanon, uh, the West Bank. Some of them are in Gaza. So basically just a typical Palestinian family that you have – scattered uh, all all around the world and um, divided into um, historical Palestine, 1948, uh, West Bank, Gaza, the uh, refugee camps in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and um, later on across Europe and uh, all around the globe.
0: What percentage of those families do you believe perished? So basically the the
2: elders, uh, another story that was told by my grandmother that she got separated from her brothers, and one of her brothers was pushed in and basically um, departed towards uh, the West Bank, and he was with his grandmother. So um, as they were forced uh, at gunpoint to leave Shab and, and go to the West Bank, the grandmother, unfortunately, she didn't make it. She passed away as they were uh, um, becoming refugees. So she couldn't make it. And then some some family from his hometown, his village, just uh, basically adopted him at that point and uh, carried him uh, with them. Many people, basically many elders and people who are ill or even children, uh, so basically the, the vulnerable groups, right, they couldn't make it.
0: How many members of your family are with you in Melbourne
2: now? It's just me, my husband, and my son. Um, my family, my whole family, is still back home in Palestine, basically.
0: Are they in the West Bank or Gaza?
2: No, my family is from Akka. So Akka, again, it's in uh, what what now is called Israel, right? So it's in Acre City, Akka. Yes. Uh, but my aunts are in, in – I have family in the West Bank as well, like in Janine, and I have family in Gaza.
0: So you have been able to visit most of those people over the years? No, actually not
2: mo- not most of them because some of them are in Gaza. And Gaza now, you know, have been uh, under complete lockdown and siege for um, over 12 years, 13 years almost now, since 2006, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the family that I have in Gaza, I don't know of anymore. And then I have uh, some families in refugee camps in uh, Syria and in Lebanon, which I've also never met in my life. Yeah, I've only seen the ones in the West Bank and my immediate family and, you know, uh, aunts and uncles in my hometown.
0: What does Al-Nakba Day mean for you now? Tough question because um, so the Nakba is not just an
2: event that happened, like it's an isolated event that happened mm-hmm. back in 1948 and then it ended there. Um, the Nakba is, a, is definitely an ongoing process for Palestinians. And, and even to this day we are seeing and living the implications of Al-Nakba. For example, you can see Al-Nakba today manifests in Gaza uh, through the siege and lockdown and the occasional bombings and attacks that are carried out by the Israeli military. In the West Bank, it it manifests itself throughout the apartheid wall, the checkpoints, Israeli checkpoints at every um, town and village. And then inside Israel also, it manifests itself in um, the legislations and, and laws that Israel um, has put in place to kind of uh, make sure that the Palestinians are marginalized, they don't receive equal rights, and that they are, as an indigenous group, basically all of their rights, human basic rights, are just denied. So these are things that are guaranteed by the Israeli law.
0: And of course, the many thousands who are in dreadful refugee camps throughout the Middle East, and like yourself, you're exiled to Australia. Yeah, the
2: refugees basically. And then, yes, another form in which the Nakba manifests itself, it's through the 6 million refugee, 6 million Palestinian refugees. And that's almost like in 1948, that was 75% of the population. We're talking about 520 demolished and destroyed town and village inside Palestine. All these people that were exiled are now living in refugee camps, whether across the Middle East or even in Palestine, or internally displaced people also inside intro. I'm
0: going to ask you about a number of online events that are happening this week, but today is Monday. I know that this is not going to be broadcast till tomorrow, but today is World Kafir Day. What does that mean for you? Kafir is a symbol now. It has become a symbol of resistance, of social justice,
2: um, you can see uh, not only Palestinians wearing kofiyi, which is traditionally just a Palestinian scarf that is worn by Palestinians, but now because it's worn by Palestinians and it has been as as a natural part of the everyday life in Palestine, it has been um, present in uh, in every uh, aspect of the Palestinian struggle and resistance. As I said, it's become a symbol of justice, symbol of Resistance, a symbol of uh, human
0: rights and peace. And, of course, there's many non-Palestinians who wear the scarf as well. That is right. So, yes, we, we can see that the kafi is featured. It's worn
2: by many non-Palestinian uh, activists, whether in the U.S. or in Europe or here in Australia. Some people wear it as a fashion statement, but initially the kofi is a symbol of resistance and perseverance and sumud, sumud, which
0: is steadfastness. steadfastness. A Nakba Day is Friday, yeah. but as you've said, Nura, it's a, not just a day; yeah. it's ongoing. And to commemorate yeah. that day and that time, there are a number of online events that people are, are able to go for and to go to. And that's yeah. really important, isn't it, to keep that struggle going online?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, it is essential that the struggle continues. and and um, we continue to basically raise awareness and um, expose what happens back home. As I said earlier, al-Nakba is an ongoing event, and we need to constantly remind the world that Gaza is still under siege, and there's still people protesting in Gaza for the right of return. And For example, one of the events that the Palestinian community across Australia has organized for this Nakba commemoration is a virtual commemoration of Nakba, which uh, features speakers from Gaza, like Haidar Aid, speakers from the West Bank, Jerusalem, and prominent speakers, Palestinian speakers from Australia as well, like Randab al-Fattah. So that event has been uh, organized by grassroots organizations in Australia that are Palestinians or Friends of Palestine. And then uh, there's another creative writing competition that's been organized by another Palestinian community grassroots organization, which is the Palestinian Community Association of Victoria, and that is also focused around Palestine and, and uh, the Nakba. Uh, so it's called the Ghassan Khinefani Creative Writing Competition. There is another lecture by Bassam Ghali uh, also uh, on Friday, and on Sunday there's a film night Gaza Fights for Freedom. So there's a lot of uh, activity uh, happening going on here in Australia by Palestinians or Solidarity movements to commemorate 72nd Palestinian Nakba.
0: Is the best place to find out the addresses where people can contact the Zoom is by looking up APAN Facebook or web page?
2: I would say uh, contact APAN because APAN basically provides all these uh, informations and details for all the organizations and all of the programs that are happening.
0: Okay, thanks, Nura. No worries, thank you. I've been speaking with Nura Mansour, and just a reminder of that webpage again it's apan.org.au. 3CR are selling Kofi'ah Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. Hi, we're the Morindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. I'm reading from a full-page advertisement in a magazine. Scenic understands that travel opens up a world of wonderful experiences that create memories that last a lifetime. It's about the joy of planning your next adventure, travelling to new destinations, and immersing yourself in new cultures. You've probably worked out that it's cruise ships, floating cities, manly, which most people would not realise have a dark side, and one person who has written recently that stranded cruise ships around the world have become a symbol of COVID-19, and believe it is no exaggeration to suggest that the crisis could spell the end of the line for an industry already on the nose for its social, health and environmental problems. That person is Freya Higgins, dispo, senior lecturer in tourism management, At the University of South Australia. I spoke with Freya yesterday and began by asking her about the origins of these vessels. Which countries the businesses began their voyages? I
3: guess it began with mass tourism um, and the mass tourism market in the United States. The Americans are the largest cruise industry consumers So my guess is the big ships began to be used in a mass tourism model from the 1970s. But you'd have to research that. That I don't have the answer to.
0: Now, there are two types of cruise ships, aren't there? There's the ones who travel the major rivers in the northern hemisphere, and then there's those that travel the oceans. Is that correct? There are those
3: differences, yes. There are also sort of a typology, which I think is of interest in my analysis, that goes from small cruise ships to the mega ships. So another way of seeing it is, and the river cruise ships would tend to be in the smaller category. So you've got small boutique ships, which hold somewhere within the range of a couple of hundred people. Then you move to cruise ships, which are within the sort of 500 range to 2000, something like that. And then mega cruise ships, which are the newest form, can hold Multiple thousands, and I believe today it goes up to something like six or seven thousand that mega cruise ships can hold. So, what you find is the mega cruise ships are cruising the major markets and oceans, and the smaller river tours or intercoastal waters another way of seeing the places where the ships go are the rivers in Europe. You've also got ships that will ply the internal. Um, oceans of a particular country so in Australia you know we'd be seeing that there are some cruise ships that stay within sort of Australian territorial waters and then you've got the ocean-going vessels which can go around the world and much larger distances.
0: I think the ones that I am want to concentrate on now are the ocean-going vessels. What international laws are they accountable to? It's a really complex situation.
3: So when I wrote my article, and I assume you contacted me, Jan, because of the article that I wrote for the conversation, I was discussing a model that is used called flags of convenience. And you find that the majority of the big multinational corporations operating in the cruise sector fly under flags of convenience. I think it's about 80% of the market is captured by them. And I'm talking about um, companies like Carnival, um, Norwegian, and Royal Caribbean being some of the biggest. So when they operate under flags of convenience, the laws that they operate under are, when they're in international waters, they're subject to the laws of the jurisdiction where they're registered. So in the case of um, some of these companies, like Carnival cruise ships are incorporated in the Bahamas. Other ships are incorporated in Panama, Bermuda, Malta, um, places like this. The reason that these companies do this is the flag of convenience countries have lower tax requirements, lower protections for workers, which means that you can pay very, very small amounts and have less positive working conditions for the workers, and additionally, Less environmental regulations in saying that there are laws that countries can sign up to on international maritime law and there's an international maritime organization which is a UN body and that is attempting to regulate shipping and cruise ships for minimum workers conditions and environmental regulations that are acceptable in international waters But states need to sign up to that. And then the question is how well they're implemented as well. You can have the regulations, but it doesn't mean that they're actually well implemented. Additionally, the International Labour Organization Protection of Workers can apply if states sign up to it, and that will affect the cruise ship crew and their working conditions. And then the other thing to be aware of is The Cruise Lines International Association is an industry association which does promote policies which are meant to help pressure the cruise ship companies to minimum policies for good practices, responsibility, and sustainability. Now, let me give you an example. You're asking me, you know, what regulations do they fall under? One of the controversies on cruise ships is there have been a large number of deaths at sea and even murders. So if a murder happens when a cruise ship is in the United States territorial waters, then that murder would be subject to the laws of the United States if it's in the territorial waters. If, however, the ship has left U.S. territorial waters and is in international waters, My understanding is the jurisdiction for dealing with that crime, which would include investigating and prosecuting, would go to the country where the ship is registered. So in the case of Carnival, that might be the Bahamas that would be the jurisdiction to deal with that crime. And there is some dissatisfaction with that system and the way it works.
0: When you say deaths and murders, are you talking about passengers or you're talking about the crew?
3: Both have happened. So if you want to see some information that I think is reputable on that issue, there is a lawyer um, specializing in cruise ship concerns, and his name is Jim Walters. And if you look him up on the web, you'll see some more information about this. He's the expert, so I don't know if you want to interview him about this. But in this case, we are talking about both crew committing crimes and passengers committing crimes.
0: Let's focus on the crew for a few minutes. The majority come from less developed countries. What conditions do they have? What's the range of conditions that you've been able to find out for these workers?
3: Well, the workers are coming from places like the Philippines, Indonesia, India, Um, in large numbers, and that's because that they are willing to take um, less pay and to accept difficult working conditions because the economies of their home countries do not offer jobs and income that are promising. So this is a model that the industry runs under for underpinning its profits, basically, is that having workers that are willing to live under poor conditions um, enables the big corporations to secure greater profit from their labor. The conditions include often being paid very, very low wages, being um, subject to very long working hours. So a 12-hour day can be unusual of being within a shift or you know working or being on call for a whole 12 hours. And some of the crew on the ships can go without a day off for months at a time And then what will happen is after seven or eight months, they might then get leave to go back to their home country and visit their family. And the reason that they accept those working conditions is because they need to send money back to their families as remittance money for their family's survival. In a way, there is an exploitation in this model that workers that are willing to accept poor paying conditions are the ones that are used in these jobs. There's a great show that will give you insights into that if you want to refer to it on dispatches, which I believe was made in 2015 where an investigative journalist did undercover work on a British cruise ship or a ship going out of British waters um, and uncovered um, some of these issues quite strongly. The industry will say that that's acceptable, that, you know, the um, conditions and pay are better than what the developing country workers would get in their home countries. But to me, that doesn't seem morally acceptable when you're talking about wealthy cruise ships who are making profits and middle-class people enjoying cheap holidays on the ship. My view is, is that the middle-class tourists and the multinationals are getting their enjoyment and their profits off of um, the suffering and the exploitation of developing country workers.
0: How and where are they accommodated on these ships? My understanding
3: is that they're in the lower decks, often without portholes. They are not given like a a cabin that a passenger would enjoy. So it could be four crew earthed in a room, subject to really long hours. And so you're not finding that their downtime is actually very enjoyable within those conditions. The cruise industry will say that there are crew facilities like crew dining facilities and crew gyms and so on where they can enjoy their leisure time that way. But with the working uh, arrangement the way it is, it's not necessarily a very uh, good working condition. Other thing, though, to understand is that a lot of the people that are employed on cruise lines are young and they're willing to do it um, because of potential excitement at sea and because they're physically strong and healthy and wanting to send that money home, they're willing to accept those conditions.
0: They have access to health services. I'd imagine there must be injuries if they're working those long hours.
3: Yes, they are, and the International Maritime Organization requires the countries that sign on to that to give proper health care for the crew um, of the cruise ships, as, as well as um, other shipping industries as well. So yes, they get the same sorts of medical medical care as the passengers would get. There's um, not difficulty with that. I do think that the COVID-19 pandemic, though, exposed their vulnerability. It was a very unusual situation, but I was quite concerned when the pandemic hit. And the ships were stopped from coming into port that around the world, countries did facilitate the crew, uh, sorry, the crew's passengers getting off of the ship. But in certain places like Australia, thousands of crew were left on the ships awaiting a decision about how they would be dealt with. They were left on ships that had experienced COVID-19 outbreaks. And some of the crew expressed quite strong distress at the situation and fear of getting COVID-19. And here in Australia, I know that it was the unions, the labor unions here, that worked really hard to draw attention to the crew and the difficulties that that they were under. And I don't think it was good enough the way it was handled in Australia. I think they were left for quite a long time. And I think that shows a lack of appreciation of these workers and their well-being.
0: I read an article that said there's possibly one hundred thousand of these foreign workers stuck on ships around the world.
3: Yes, there has been at one point. What's happened to them now? I don't know because the story has gone quite quiet here in Australia. The Ruby Princess was forced to leave um after some people had some crew had been um disembarked from the ship and then facilitated to get to their home countries. A large number of crew if I remember correctly it might have been 500 crew were kept on the ship to then take it to the Philippines you know the question then becomes what happens in that a ship will require a certain number of people to stay on the ship whether it's operational or not for its ongoing maintenance um, and security but there you don't need the thousands that typically are needed to run the ship these big cruise ships have more than a 1,000 crew um, on them, you know, and going to the Philippines, whether that was because there was a large number of workers from the Philippines there or, you know, the cruise ship company negotiated a cheap right to dock there for the indefinite period of time that's needed, you know, I don't know the answers to that. And I do know that it's quite a difficult situation that we don't know what's going to happen in the pandemic. Um, It's such an uncertain situation major cruise companies, particularly the ocean-going ones, have all closed down. Um, So we're in a wait-and-see moment and the cruise companies are bleeding money and in a fight for survival. So Carnival, if I remember correctly, did an extraordinary action to raise money by selling bonds to try to get funds coming in so that it can survive and I think calculating on sort of a six-month timeline to when they might be up and running again.
0: Is there in fact two levels of crew on these ships? You've got the, the people you've been talking about, the, you could say the lower level, who are not well looked after, and then you've got the crew who are in contact with the passengers who presumably would be better paid and have better conditions than the others.
3: Yes, you will find that. And I think in the 1990s I read analysis of that talking about it being even in terms of a racial hierarchy, that the darker your skin, the lower um, level and indirect service that you've got on the cruise ships. So certainly there are some that have higher pay, like entertainers, um, and they have more freedom and more choice about their contracts and how they um, work their career with the cruise ship companies, sports trainers and all of those things, client-facing crew. And then you've got really poor pay and conditions for the people doing the laundry or the cleaning, sanitation, preparations, those things, um, more difficult. And I understand that that would be the crew that would be coming from Indonesia and India um, and some of the Philippines.
0: I understand that lack of environmental regulations has been a problem for quite a long while. Does dumping at sea still happen?
3: Yes, and in fact, um, cruise companies have been fined for that. Again, I think you'll find Carnival has been fined, if I remember correctly, $40 million. And it was after already having been fined and told not to do the action again with ocean dumping. So you've got problems with sewerage leaks. You've got dirty fuel, um, which has been linked, and you've got dumping of waste at sea, some of which is illegal. Uh, I'm not sure of the full international regulations that um, there is some allowance for allowing treated gray water to be released into international waters. It shouldn't be released within territorial waters, but it can be done in international waters. So this is a real problem for the cruise industry and one that they're trying to keep away from the public's awareness. You've got emissions that occur. So when a cruise ship is at port and waiting during the eight or ten hours that they're doing the shore visit and the cruise passengers are going to enjoy tours or whatever it is, the air quality goes down um, where the cruise ship is. So they're known to be a polluter. The bigger cruise ships are like small towns. They bring in this pollution that you'd associate with a small town um, when they come into port. And then in terms of environmental sustainability, when we're all trying to be more sustainable and thinking about greenhouse gases and our emissions, I've seen an estimate that says for a passenger that you increase your personal ecological footprint by three times when you engage in a cruise holiday.
0: I'd imagine there's no expense spared for the passengers on some of these cruise ships.
3: Uh, I would think that many cruise passengers are not environmentally conscious. And if I said the word ecological footprint to them, I doubt they know what that means. I have sympathy, though, with cruise passengers. I want to be careful in what I say. You know, I come from a family that was poor. I'm the first person in my family to go to university. And I know how difficult it is to afford a holiday. So the attraction for the cruise markets, and again, I'll talk about the American market, but it's the same for the Australian market, that you've got families that can book a cruise holiday and enjoy a seven-day holiday for less than $1,000. And it's all-inclusive, where you know what you're paying in terms of your food, your entertainment. A little bit, you know, drinks, you might buy a drinks package to be able to do that. But basically everything's included including nice accommodation. So for a family on a budget, you know, cruises are good because you don't break your budget as you would if you went on a land-based holiday. And you've got to be very careful about your spending. So I can understand, you know, that attraction for the cruise holiday. The mass market that's going on these cruises that are inexpensive don't have a lot of money, and the cruise industry has really attracted them through this model. And it's really good for people that want to go on international travel, but they're not adventuresome. So, for instance, for Australians that, you know, take a cruise to Vanuatu or New Caledonia, which are, you know, attractions for Australians, because we don't speak French, often we don't speak French, The cruise visits are actually a great chance that you get a flavor of a place, but it's a very safe visit and very short. So, for people who aren't adventuresome, the cruise market fits really well for it. So, I understand that. I think what I'm offended by, and I'll use that word, you can quote me on that, what I'm offended by is that the low cost holiday that that cruise passenger enjoys is at the expense of the worker. And in my view, also at the expense of the host community, because the host communities are not getting sufficient economic benefits from cruise ship visits to justify the negative impacts that they get for it. So I've talked about the workers being exploited. The other side to this is the fact that the places that host cruise ships often will have less economic benefits than what are promised to them. And in fact, they wear a good deal of social, environmental, and infrastructural costs that are not made clear to the host community before the visits start.
0: What are they promised?
3: Well, they're promised that it's a great tourism segment to host. Um, So we find around Australia that we've got development and spending on Newport facilities to create cruise terminals so that we can host the bigger and bigger ships here in South Australia each year. The South Australian Tourism Commission is telling, you know, the local community, Oh, we've attracted 50 ships this year and it's going to be fantastic. And what they're promised is it supports our jobs. It brings tourism, um, spending into the economy and that it really spins out through the economy. But the reason that I say that it's none of the benefit that's promised. In fact, when the cruise passengers come off the ships, they've got a very limited time to visit. So, you know, typically it'd be about eight hours that they have a shore visit. Some people will book a tour, for instance, here in South Australia, uh, they book a tour to go to McLaren vale wine region or to the Barossa wine region, and that does generate money. But some of the cruise passengers that I was talking about that are on a tight budget, they feel that they've spent the money to be on the cruise. And they've got their food and their drink on the cruise. So when they come off for the shore visit, they'll engage in things that don't cost a lot of money. So you wouldn't be getting a lot of money from those people. In different destinations, you'll get an estimation. So I looked at Darwin, which has become a new um, cruise industry location here in Australia. In 2015 statistics suggested that the average spend of the cruise visitor in that study, if I remember correctly, was something like an average of $91 per person. So it's not a lot of money.
0: What about in a country like Vanuatu? Vanuatu has a a mixed message. It's very attractive for
3: cruise ships. And the major island, um, I'm sorry, I won't remember the name of the major island, but the major island is a a major tourism destination with some visitation to smaller, um, more remote islands happening. Research that I read, which was from the Nature Conservancy, if I remember correctly, Really weighed that up really well about the benefits and the drawbacks of hosting cruise ship visitors. You know, it's it's a mixed bag that it it does add to the opportunities to tap the tourism market. Cruise ships bring visitors that otherwise wouldn't travel to a place like Vanuatu, but the benefit may not be what's needed to really help the development prospects of of a place like Vanuatu.
0: Just thinking about Venice, the people of Venice are very unhappy about the cruise ships that come into or near their their part of the world because of the environmental damage that the ships do.
3: Yeah, well, that's a serious problem of coming up the Grand Canal um, to make it convenient for tourists to easily access the old part of the city, the tourist sort of attractive part of the city, and the ships are leading to erosion on the canals. It's been very damaging. People of Venice, though, are angry overall at tourism, that they have a form of tourism pushed upon them, which is really low value considering the damages that they suffer socially and environmentally from tourism. So Venice is a hot spot of real difficulty of the worst impacts of tourism. And I think the worst thing that can happen to a place is when the tourists drive out the local people, and that certainly has happened in the old part of Venice, and it's a major problem. And the cruise ships become, you know, just another example of that. There's a solution with the cruise ships that they're talking about, and I don't know the name of the place where the terminal could be, but they could unload the visitors in another spot that would be much more conducive to limiting the negative impacts of the cruise ships if they did that blame has been given to different parts like the cruise industry association said in an interview that the the problem with having it there was politics of the city that they didn't get the terminal that was in a more faraway location my suspicion is though that they want the convenience of the cruise passengers to be of prime interest and so the further you take the cruise ship away for the docking That means that you've got to put the cruise passengers on buses, and then that will take time away from their enjoyment of what is a very short shore visit. So that's what you're trying to balance in the decision-making on this.
0: Finally, Freya, it's now a month since you, or since I read your article titled, This Could Be the End of the Line for Cruise Ships. What are your thoughts now?
3: I think that there's a real fight on to keep the cruise industry going with the model of business as usual and the cruise industry is in the fight for its life, um, particularly these multinationals that I'm talking about using the model of the flags of convenience. I really think that that model will be under threat. The cruise sector will survive in some form. You know, that's definite, that we're not going to change our enjoyment of holidays and travel through cruise ships. But the question is, what kind of cruise ship industry will emerge on the other side of COVID-19? And I don't think it will be the same model. There's a few factors behind this. One is, I think, people aren't going to have money, um, and we're going to have a time of economic uncertainty And the luxury of discretional spending on holidays is going to be very difficult for a large number of people. So I think that's one thing that's, you know, a factor in this. The cruise industry, I think, is going to have to rethink the flags of convenience model because the vulnerability of that, not only for the crew but also for the passengers, has been exposed in this crisis. And I think that they will start rethinking the model to have a stronger basis in the countries in which they do business rather than doing this registration to countries that are under flags of convenience. And then I think technically we're going to find that the mega cruise ships are not going to tend to be developed now. I think there will be a turn away from that, and that we'll be going for smaller ships probably moving away from that mass tourism model that the cruise ship industry was going for. Hopefully there will be a rebalancing in the industry where the smaller operators the independent operators that are doing more sustainable responsible um, types of cruising that they'll find an increase in the market share that would be my prediction
0: okay thank you very much I've been speaking with Freya Higgins Despois, senior lecturer in tourism management at the University of South Australia housing for
2: the aged action group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus but we're still here If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it.
0: Stay safe, everyone.
4: Piece. This is Rod Stars. What up, this is G-1. This is DJ Illinois.
5: And together we are Rebel, Rebel Diaz. Diaz. And whenever we are here, we listen to 855 AM, 3CRD Digital, 3CR.org.au. You already know what it is. Free Radical Radio. Let's go. 3CR.
0: I'm speaking now with activist Lee Tan about events in Malaysia over the past weeks to the present. Lee with the virus, which if we believe government figures from countries around the world has varied from country to country, what's the official figures for Malaysia and how would you judge the way the government is handling the crisis?
6: Not really because I don't think testing is done quite as extensively as required in uh, Malaysia. And also the reliability of the test. I'll say that there will be many tests that has not been uh, detected, and uh, they are mostly counting on the people who show up at the hospital. Although, from my understanding, they are backtracking quite effectively whenever they have identified a case, which is a good thing. They have numerous blunders in their movement control orders, where, for example, The case where they say, uh, you know, only one member of the household can go to do their shopping, uh, the head of the household. And in Malaysia, by the local definition, the head of the household is usually, you know, the male who earn the income. Well, they don't normally do the household shopping. So there have been a lot of blunders and it became like an international story of uh, a bad Kind of example of a movement control order. Yeah, when with the you know, and supermarkets have had to help the males to do their shopping properly. It was quite hilarious, as much as uh, frustrating for the local people. And then there's also other thing like you know, asking people to go back to their. Villages or wherever, and Malaysia is a country where people travel in the states for all sorts of jobs and you know studies and stuff like that. so as soon as that order was issued, there was congestion in every you know public transport hub, and that in itself is creating infections and prior to that, you know even after you know, we have learned about the um, infectious uh, nature of this uh, COVID-19, there was a huge gathering of uh, Muslim leaders in Kuala Lumpur. And that became a major cluster, uh, not only for Malaysia, but for other Muslim leaders from the region, from all around the world who had attended that particular gathering. So there's all this you know, issues uh, surrounding Malaysia. And of course, one of the major problems is um, just before the lockdown occurred in Malaysia and before the pandemic took over the Ingate line, the government, uh, you know, there's been a lot of uncertainty as to who actually is the legitimate government in Malaysia. So, yeah, that would be the issue, I guess, you'd be interested to know.
0: And, of course, the parliament's not sitting, so that hasn't been resolved?
6: No, no, it hasn't, actually. The the sitting has been set. There's a, a, a date set for the 18th of May, in a week's time, sit for one day. Of course, you know, the short sitting session is deliberately set so that the opposition, well, whichever way you want to look at it, so that there's no challenge to this so-called back government, which has uh, gotten into power through, what do you call that, frock lippings by certain leaders from the the original ruling party, a coalition. A
0: coup when you're not having a coup.
6: Yeah, it's a kind of a strange coup. This next parliamentary session will be very interesting because just recently, Mahatel, who was the previous prime minister has uh, issued a notice of no, com- uh, you know, of no confidence against the current prime minister, the backdoor prime minister, and at the same time, another uh, one of the MP in the the previous government has uh, issued another notice backing Mahathir as the Prime Minister. The next parliamentary session, if uh, they're allowed to deal with these notices, it will be a fairly hot, uh, heated one if it happens.
0: I'd imagine many businesses have been closed down but are starting to reopen. Would like to remain closed is the rare earth producer Linus Corporation. It applied for an exemption or a critical industry status. How does an industry like that close down? It must be very difficult.
6: Yeah, it is difficult in that sense that um, you were talking about. Like, how will an industry like that be closed down, like permanently, or
0: just physically close down? A big plant like that.
6: I mean, it will be costly for the company to shut down and then reopen, but it has. It has shut down back, I think, in March when uh, there was a, a major lockdown happening in Malaysia. And it's, but Linus has restarted since last Sunday. Yeah, because in overall in Malaysia, the movement control order has been relaxed. So, many other businesses are beginning resuming their, their operations anyway, um, but Linus did apply for exemption, and that exemption was also granted you know at the same time the, the Malaysian government has kind of um, not lifted but basically relaxed the movement control order and it, it is costly, but at the same time there's no demand. Rare earth at the moment because of the international slowdown in trading. And, and also, Linus has always been manage, managing to fool the market that it is very strategic and critical when, in fact, it is only a light rare earth producer. The kind of rare earths that are in demand are the heavy rare earths, which Linus only has very little of. So it is really not a significant rare supplier, but it has managed to fool people who are not well informed of the complexity and the intricacy of the rare earth industry, if you know what I mean.
0: What's the current situation regarding the low-level radioactive spoil? I believe there's hundreds of thousands of tonnes piled up in Malaysia.
6: Yep. There's two streams of ways uh, you know, that's been generated by Linus. One stream is the more highly radioactive stream, and that is nearly—I'll say by now it would have nearly a million tons now, which is significant. It's basically just piled by the side of the plant in very poorly lined dams that has been leaking and also overflowing in a rainy period uh, into the surrounding environment and Linus' own tests has shown that the groundwater has been contaminated with heavy matter there's no detection of radioactive material yet because no test has been done basically um, which is problematic and that kind of condition even in australia it would have been illegal to do so but in Malaysia, the authority, the regulators basically given Linus a green light because either they did not fully understand the hazards from this kind of long-living radionuclides found in the waste like uranium and thorium and also toxic heavy matter or that they are completely corrupt in the way they so-called you know, regulate or not regulate uh, the industry. Local people will have to wear the hazards, unfortunately. Um, and that's permanent because um, both thorium and r- uranium have very, very high long li- half-life.
0: Can you explain what the December agreement to relocate its cracking and leaching operation to Western Australia by 2025 means? By then
6: it's too late because liners initially, when they applied to operate in Malaysia, I think it has got certain amount that was agreed to in the agreement anyway. And by 2025, most of the liners like rare earth would have been fully processed just through the Malaysian plant. It will mean that all the waste will remain in, Australia, in Malaysia. And then, you know, Linus may get new capital to set up the cracking and leaching plant. But I would say that that's really just a um, a plot to get its license extended. Whether or not it's going to happen remains to be seen, because now um, uh, Linus is talking about setting up a separation plant in the USA in Texas through a MOU that it has entered into with a U.S. chemical company, Blue Line. So, you know, it is really just the way has been manipulating the government and the market to keep operating and to make money out of it.
0: Well, they've done a pretty good job over the last few years, haven't they?
6: Oh, yes. In terms of uh, exploiting Malaysia and um yeah, and catching in on its lax governance and also in terms of manipulating the geopolitics of rare earth minerals just because it's considered a strategic and um, critical. I mean, it shouldn't really apply to all rare earth, but only specific types of rare earth that's used in um, in high tech and advanced technology. But, you know is basically taking advantage of um, people's ignorance on rails.
0: To return to the consequences of the virus, the growing hostility mm. to Rohingya refugees and asylum seekers, yes. they've previously been allowed to stay, haven't they, and in quite large numbers. Yes, because
6: in the spirit of Muslim Brotherhood or good. The Rohingyas never been in the past rejected by Malaysia, but that seems to have changed of late. It is unclear as to why they have done that. Firstly, Malaysia is not a signatory to the UNHCR convention, the refugee, the UN refugee convention, which is problematic, um, which means that, you know, it can do whatever it likes with refugees. And that means, you know, human rights abuses. Now I think you know there've been a lot of uh, false, fake news, if you want to call it, inaccurate info or misinformation spreading around through social media about the Rohingyas, and they all usually you, you know blaming them for being just opportunistic economic refugees that has not been persecuted and that they brought their own suffering upon themselves and so on and so forth. I mean that's. Somebody would have started that, and I suspect it could be the Malay supremacist within the government or within the the major parties, particularly the the former National Front government. To firstly, you know, it, it will serve two purposes. I, I uh, the way I look at it, number one is to detract. The issues from the backdoor government or the pro the coup, the process in which the current kind of um core PAPN, the national coalition government, it's called Pakatan National, which means national, yeah, in a, in a way, it's a national ally, alliance or something government, which you know, basically is the same as the previous National Front government. Uh, basically to distract people from um, the fact that the government has been formed through very underhanded, backdoor manner. I think that will be one of the reasons why this kind of rumor has kind of spread to create community opposition against the Rohingyas. And the Rohingya has been, unlike Australia, they've basically been um, not integrated, but basically they live amongst the community. Their visibility is a a little bit more obvious over there. Yeah, and as we know from our own experience, right-wing government often use refugees as a, uh, what do you call that? Basically, they they pawn in the sandwich when there there are other national issues that the government has failed to address. So I think that'd be number one. Number two is um, being the Malay supremacist uh, methods, you know, by people condemning the Rohingyas is basically reminding the population that Malaysia has uh, their own kind of Rohingyas. The Malay and uh, Indians, migrants, or descendants of the migrants from century and decades ago it's not you know the the experience yeah. of the, the the chinese and the indians and the portuguese and so on and so forth are not dissimilar to what the Rohingya, the the movement, actually the pattern of migration is not dissimilar, although it's maybe different time period, different region and so on and so forth. So that will be a way for the Malay supremacists to then attack the non-Malay population of Malaysia, saying that, you know, they don't have as much right as the Malay who's been there longer, that kind of thing, yeah. Although that kind of claim is fraught in many ways apart from being racist. Historically, the movement of people into Malaysia is a lot more complex than
0: that. And, of course, another groups of non malays are the migrant workers from countries like Bangladesh, Nepal, India. Yes. Yes. Philippines.
6: Yeah, that's right. And Indonesia. How are
0: they faring? Are they being discriminated against at the moment? Apart from
6: being workers... Basically they, they are the third class uh residents of Malaysia and they need it for the for, you know, their labor, the cheap labor. By and large, you know, some of them are well treated enough, others are pretty exploited. The level of protection for these migrant workers are uh limited. They often lived in very congested housing area, has very poor hygiene standards. So, you know, at this stage, they have been uh, left out in the news, but I have heard that there's one area in Kuala Lumpur where the government has cordoned off because of uh, uh, the presence of uh, COVID-19 infection. And there's been quite a bit of brutality involved when they try to get out to buy, you know, basic essentials. Yeah, the brutality from the police uh, and the military. See, all that's kind of not me uh, hitting the headline, apart from uh, social media and also the online news services. So they're not faring very well either.
0: Do you hear much news about what's happening in the agriculture or the rural areas of Malaysia?
6: Well, it's business as usual there. I have cousins who operate hardware shops and shops that sell fertiliser and so on and so forth. There's not a lot of things happening, and that's what I meant. There may be infection there, elderly people might be dying, but unless they test it, nobody's going to know that it's linked to the um, COVID-19 infection. So, yeah, and the agriculture sector is essential service, so it hasn't actually been constrained through the movement control, control order.
0: What do they produce in the countryside? Mostly palm oil, a bit of rubble, uh,
6: a lot of logging and mining as well. So yes, mining and logging, theoretically it was meant legally, they were meant to stop, but there's been a lot of illegal logging happening in the sector from other, so like the non-mainstream news services that I have come across.
0: Just to finish, Tan, to go back to Linus, there's more connections with the U.S., isn't there?
6: Yes. As we know, the Trump government has started a uh, trade war with China since last year. And uh, one of the sectors affected is uh, the rare earth sector. As we all know, because China has been dominating, in fact, been the primary producer for rare earth in the world, uh, U.S. has decided to try to set up its own rare earth producing facility. It's because of the uh, U.S. was once a major rare earth producer in the world, but because of the radioactive waste management rules that has been tightened since the late 70s and its major producer, Molly Corp, in California, has uh, contaminated water and was fined several times. So eventually, MOLICOP outsourced its, process, its um, minerals to be processed in China. And that—that that is how China has then risen to become a predominant producer of rare earth in the world. It was because of the West and the advanced economies not wanting to have to deal with radioactive waste in their own backyard. And now, with Trump and his uh, U.S.-China trade war, it is trying to revive the rails industry in the USA because of its uh, strategic importance in uh, advanced technology, including weapon-making technology. So recently... Linus and Molycorp, uh, well, formerly Molycorp, in California have both been granted a, a small grant to look into refining heavy rare earth in the USA. It is quite strange as to how and why Linus was awarded, not directly, but through its MOU partner, Blue Line, a chemical company in Texas, yeah, well, firstly, Linus is not a heavy rare earth producer. It's about 70% of his uh, rare earth minerals are of the light variety that is not really in demand and is already in uh, excessive supply in the international market. And then secondly, Rimus really hasn't got the refining Technology. What it is producing in Malaysia are oxides, chloride, and carbonates. They are really just separated from earth that needs to be refined into pure elements before they can be used in the industry. I mean, it just goes to show you know, when the government is desperate to um, revive an industry or to create an industry, they will put money even though you know the technical capabilities do not are present. And bad news for Malaysia, it means that Lila is going to go bankrupt in the immediate future because of all this political support. And by the way, the, the U.S. military funding is probably a result of the intervention both by Trump and also by the Morrison government.
0: Just finally, Lee, Lee Tan, how are your family faring in Guangzhou? I think
6: you know they they feel frustrated with the Liners waste, and yeah, people are living not knowing whether or not their drinking water will be contaminated one day, whether the air will be contaminated, you know, when the monsoon wind blow and so on and so forth. But you know, they live in a country where they are used to corruption basically. Whether they like it or not, yeah. Apart from continuing trying to oppose to it, when there's opportunity, they just have to survive basically from day to day. And there's still a pending court case in Kuala Lumpur where Linus is concerned. Some residents from Kuantan has taken a judicial review case to the High Court. That's still to be decided by the court yet so the key has been accepted
0: technically okay thanks lee okay good i've been speaking with activist lee tan i just think that it's ironic that the state of victoria want to treaty with aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites
5: War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons.
3: Subscribe to 3CR, fighting for social justice and environmental change.
6: And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead. The current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't.
4: Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe
3: or call the station on nine four one nine eight three double seven.
4: Follow,
1: follow the sun.
0: Which way the wind blows. Which Middle East country requires the president to be a Maronite Christian, the Speaker of Parliament, a Shiite Muslim, and the Prime Minister, a Sunni Muslim. And the answer is Lebanon. A country in Western Asia, bordered by Syria to the north and east, Israel to the south, with the west the Mediterranean Sea. A country with a rich history, cultural identity of religious and ethnic diversity. Today we look at the recent history of Lebanon with Dr. Tim Anderson, Tim, the borders of the contemporary Lebanon are a product of the Treaty of Service in 1920, but it goes right back to 1916, the Sykes-Picot Agreement. So certain countries had their plans well in place long before the end of World War One.
4: That's true. Of course, the First World War was really a conflict between empires, and it ended with The fall of, well, the Russian Empire fell with the Bolshevik Revolution, but then the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire were effectively defeated in the First World War, and the French and British Empires and the emerging North Americans began to take out slices of those former empires. So the British and the French in particular carved up the Middle East or between them. What they considered was theirs after they defeated the Ottoman Empire – And basically Britain took Iraq and Palestine and the French took Syria and Lebanon, basically. They divided it even into smaller pieces, basically. But there was a period, an interval, which they called a mandate, which they got from the League of Nations from the Paris Treaty in 1919 until after the Second World War, where they were colonising those parts of the Middle East, basically. And, And so Lebanon and Syria didn't fully get their independence from France until 1946. And then, of course, we've got another story with Iraq and Palestine.
0: Just reading one commentary. The resulting order inherited by the Middle East of the day sees a variety of states whose borders were generally drawn with little regard for ethnic, tribal, religious or linguistic considerations. Often a patchwork of minorities, there is a natural tendency for such countries to fall apart unless held together by an iron grip of a strong man or a powerful central government. How did Lebanon fare?
4: Well, I would actually interpret it a different way to that because, uh, in fact, there were plans, proposals to divide up as far as possible on the basis of the... powers had always done this. They divided up Ireland and the Middle East. They divided up countries, often using ethnicities, to try and keep them separate, whereas there was a plan back, At the time of the fall of the Ottoman Empire for a more united Arab Confederation for example but the colonial powers didn't want that Lebanon in a sense was carved out of Syria to create an artificial majority of Maronite Christians in the same sort of way that the north part of the north of Ireland was carved out of Ireland at the time of Ireland getting its independence to weaken Ireland and to keep a foothold for the British there so In the same way that you've got that festering sore in the north of Ireland there, still with the British occupation, you've got the same sort of thing with Lebanon and the French and also, of course, Palestine and Israel and the British, basically. They carved up those. Pakistan and India also. They carved them up so that there wouldn't be a strong united nation there, basically. So Lebanon uh, is a very small country, which was only about 5 million people, which now Of course, the demographics have changed, and so there is no longer a Maronite Christian majority, but it's been adjusted back on a sectarian basis that they call a confessional system, where everyone is identified according to their religion, and it's created a very fragile and weak um, political system, which I think was the aim, basically. This was the the French plan back back in the day. A
0: very small area of the world, but a very important area of the world.
4: Well, just like Palestine, you see, Palestine and the creation of a British colony in Palestine, um, a Jewish colony, was intended and still is intended to be a foothold for the Western powers, initially Britain and later on the US, to have a foothold there and to control the region through that little part of the case of Palestine, the Arab world.
0: And how did the Lebanese people live under French mandate? How were they treated?
4: There were some new opportunities because there were ambitions in the whole Arab world to gain independence from the Ottomans and then from the French also. So there was a long history of resistance um, in Lebanon and Syria to the French. Uh, There were armed rebellions. The French reconstructed their colonial administration. They called it different names. They even called it the Republic and independent countries at different times. But... As I said, the French were, wasn't really able to claim independence until the French were driven out, and that was in 1946. After the Second World War II, the French wanted to go back to its colonies, keep all their colonies, despite the rhetoric of national self-determination after the First World War, after the Second World War. But they were driven out by resistance movements eventually in, um, in the mid-1940s.
0: Was it a bloody conflict over a number of years?
4: Yes, it was. There was a thing called the Great Arab Revolt in the 1920s, led by Sultan Bashar al Atrash in Syria, for example. There were a number of insurrections through that whole time. By the way, it's important to notice, this is a general feature, that the struggle against colonial rule was precisely what brought groups together. For example, it was the solidarity between um, Druze nationalists and Arab uh, rebels in Syria that brought the Syrian group together. Syria is a, very, is a mixture of different um, large minorities and uh, it's become a pluralist state. It's always been a pluralist part of the world, but it became a pluralist state. It reinforced that commitment to pluralism through the struggle against the French.
0: Just for years after independence, 1948, the establishment of the State of Israel, that's been an ongoing issue for Lebanon, hasn't it?
4: Well, of course, it's a festering sore in the entire Middle East. The entire Middle East is destabilised because Israel there is on the one hand, it is a uh, it's a European colony by the Zionists, who conceived of it in the 19th century during the colonial, colonial era. The Zionists wanted a slice of the British colonial world back at that time. But it's also, very importantly, a launching pad for Britain and its successor, the USA, to have a foot in that world and to try and control that world.
0: And then the refugees from Nakba.
4: That's right. The relations with the Zionist colony in Palestine South with the ethnic cleansing that was going on of the Palestinian people. And that's why that poisoned the relationship with all of their neighbors, with Lebanon, with Syria, with Iraq. And so effectively, there's never... Re- and the Jewish communities that existed in the Arab countries were had their own problems. They had to decide whether they were going to be part of the, the Arab world that they were in or whether they would migrate to Israel. So it created and still is the centre of destabilisation in that region and that was the intention really that the last thing that the big powers want was the Arab countries to get together and and that's why through a whole range of different mechanisms including the the nuclear, the attempt to impose some sort of controls over the uh, the nuclear industry in Iran also We're intended to stop cooperation between those countries. The U.S. occupation of a part of southern Syria at Al-Pantz is precisely intended to stop close cooperation between Iran, Iraq and Syria. That's been the preoccupation of the colony in Palestine and also the U.S. to try and prevent a coordination and and unity between the different forces in the Arab and Muslim world. How
0: did Lebanon cope with a huge number of refugees coming from Palestine?
4: Not very well in many respects. I mean, Lebanon itself is a country of emigres. You know, it's like Ireland in a way that there are more Lebanese outside Lebanon than inside Lebanon, but there were huge waves of refugees into Lebanon and really an ongoing problem because with the confessional nature of the Lebanese system, they aren't accommodated very well in Lebanon at all. They're deprived of rights because... They aren't Lebanese citizens. And also the Arab countries don't want to totally assimilate Palestinians because it's seen as a way of them giving up their nationality, their Palestinian nationality. Whereas in Syria, for example, the many, many um, refugees from the or from the Holocaust that was inflicted on the Palestinian people with the, the ethnic cleansing of Israel – they maintain their Palestinian identity, but they have the same rights as other Syrians in terms of being able to work and so on and to own property and so on. Whereas in Lebanon, they don't have those same sorts of rights. And so there are these things called camps, called actually they've become big suburbs of Beirut, for example, and some other parts of the country where Palestinians live, but they don't have the same rights in terms of working, in terms of owning property.
0: How important have those camps been for Palestinian resistance to Israel
4: well they're very important outside Palestine but also inside Palestine remember that inside Palestine you have these similar sorts of areas called camps they're not really camps in a way they're they're like suburbs of cities you know you've got suburbs of the outer suburbs of say Bethlehem and Hebron and Nablus for example what they represent is people that were displaced either internally within Palestine or externally to Lebanon and Syria you know the so-called frontline states and in the case of Palestine they don't own property in those camps so there is a very different sort of culture to the what you might call the normal Palestinian arab culture say in the west bank where there are people who own property. Of course, it's a fragile ownership because there's this constant confiscation of property and ethnic cleansing going on. But nevertheless, many people in the West Bank, for example, do own their homes, whereas in the camps, it's a collective sort of living situation where the UN agencies have set up these dwellings, and they're solid dwellings. It's not like a camp with tents, you know, they're, but they're small type of housing where people are in a shared sort of environment and it's a different, within Palestine it's a different sort of subculture. Um, it's not quite so different in Syria because of the way that Palestinians have been afforded like citizenship-like status there. In Lebanon it's different again because they have been deprived of rights because they don't have equal rights to the things I've mentioned, to work and property and so on in Lebanon. So it's quite the camps uh, of displaced people have quite different characteristics in Palestine, in Lebanon, and in Syria. And in Gaza too, of course, remember, you've got the highest number of doubly displaced people. people were displaced by the Nakba from what they call 1948 Palestine, or the, the central part of Israel, and then we were displaced again. So you have a different character to these camps in the different parts of the region.
0: But how have the Palestinian resistance movements used Lebanon as a base?
4: They have, but also let's remember that the southern part of Lebanon itself has been invaded several times, and um, if it weren't for the resistance in Lebanon, probably Israel would have annexed large parts of southern Lebanon and would have pushed the the largely Shia Muslim people in the south of Lebanon into Syria, into the other parts of Lebanon, for example. So you might recall that the, the pretext for one of the Israeli invasions in early the early 1980s, I remember watching it on television, where the Israeli army went all the way into Beirut, was shelling Beirut at that time, a, a large city. What their aim was to get rid of the Palestinian, the PLO at that time, the, the leadership of the Palestinian resistance. And they, in fact, drove them out, the the leadership out into Tunisia at that time. So there have been a number of these sorts of invasions into southern Lebanon to get rid of uh, what they saw as a base for organisation of the Palestinian resistance. Within Palestine itself, it has to be said that a lot of the conflict is between the new colonies, you know, the, the new colonies, what they call the settlements created by Zion colonists in the West Bank, between them and the Palestinian activists in the Palestinian camps, because typically the people in the camps in Palestine are more militant than many of the other what you might call perhaps middle-class Arabs in the rest of the West Bank, for example. So the camps of displaced people are typically hotbeds of militancy and and quite united and as a result of that the Israeli colonists tend to see them as all you know generically terrorists basically that the entire population is against Israel in those sorts of camps and that's where a lot of the conflict and a lot of the massacres have gone on in the past.
0: Can you talk about the role of Hezbollah in Lebanon?
4: Well Hezbollah is the, the The leading group, it's a religious Shia group, but it's become the leading group of a broader, let's say, um, coalition of forces in Lebanon that is generically referred to as the resistance. Now, it was created in the early 80s for two reasons. One one was the, the invasion of the Israelis, which went all the way up to Beirut, into the southern part of Beirut, where there's a lot of the Lebanese people from the south of Lebanon also live. And also because the Shia community historically was not very well represented in politically. They were a disadvantaged group, fairly poor in the southern part of Lebanon, in the Daya area near the airport. It's still the case that you have, it's a very poor area of Lebanon. But they got very organized and they began to resist the, the Israeli occupation in the south of Lebanon in particular. And eventually after a very long, I mean, there's, there was a civil war, I'll I'll gloss over that for the moment, civil war in Lebanon too but eventually after a very long period of time it was Hezbollah that with guerrilla warfare through the 1990s eventually drove the Israeli occupation out of southern Lebanon in the year 2000 then there was a a second Israeli invasion in 2006 to try and crush Hezbollah and Hezbollah famously uh, fought them to a standstill basically and inflicted a number of defeats on the Israelis and drove them out of Lebanon again in 2006 and they got very famous from that in the Arab world and the, and the Middle East generally, very famous for defeating Israel at that time and ever since then Hezbollah has gained uh, a great deal of support from outside the Shia community, particularly from the more progressive Christian community in the south of Lebanon who know very well what their role was in, in preventing um, southern Lebanon from being annexed by Israel, because the Israeli project has no real borders. You know, this is something perhaps is not well understood in the West. It's not like there is some defined state there. They've always been annexing territory, and they've been constrained by the resistance in Gaza, for example, and in in southern Lebanon. But they had intentions to annex more of um, southern Lebanon, and they are still... Uh, trying to hold on to that slice of Syria that they took in back in the 1960s, the Jordan. Back to
0: 1975 and the beginning of the civil war. What brought that on?
4: The problem is that, that Lebanon was really created on this sectarian basis, constitutionally sectarian, where there had to be a, a Maronite Christian president, and then you know the conventions that they developed over a period of time were that you know the People had to be identified with the religion and then they were represented in a sectarian basis in the parliament. So there was always divisions there. With the Israeli invasions and the Israeli pressure, those tensions blew up in the mid seventies It a vacuum which the Israelis would have taken advantage of to annex parts of Lebanon were it not for the intervention, the invited intervention of the Syrians. And that's how Syria under Hafez al Assad came into Lebanon to prevent a void into which the Israelis would have come and annexed Lebanon. But basically, there was internal fighting. The, the, the Lebanese state effectively broke down. There was a war at that time which was, effectively became a Christian Muslim split. There wasn't this Sunni Shia split that came later on in the 80s and was fomented by the big powers basically after the Iranian revolution it was largely a Christian-Muslim split and in that context that was something that affected Syria also and there was for example it's rather famous now that Hafez al-Assad the Syrian leader was trying to defuse that because there are a large number of Christians in Lebanon there are a large number of Christians in Syria indeed the the origin of, of Christian communities is from that part of the world from Palestine and Syria and Lebanon. So at that time, that split was at the root of the war, and it wasn't really until the late 80s when there were peace talks, which broke at a, a type of a compromise, a, an uneasy sort of compromise, which kept the sectarian basis of Lebanon. It was called the Taif Accords. The Taif is a place in Saudi Arabia where the, where the talks were hosted. The Taif Accords shifted the balance a little bit so that The Maronite Christians were, the Christians are mainly Maronite there. There is some Orthodox, but mainly Maronite. The Maronite Christians had 50% and not 60% of the body politic. And that reflected more or less the demographic change that there were now a greater proportion of Muslims, at least half of Lebanon is, is Muslim these days. But they kept that sectarian basis of it. So it was a compromise which was more or less accepted by all parties, including to an extent Hezbollah, which had some influence by that time, but maintained all of the problems that you've seen and the weaknesses of the system which which has been played on and which is, I mean, really a little country divided cannot do very much. Basically, there are always opportunists who will come along and inflame those sorts of divisions. That's the the long-term dilemma that Lebanon has.
0: Did it recover physically from all those years of war? I'd imagine there would be an awful lot of damage done.
4: If there's will, people can rebuild after war. The physical destruction is not, in many respects, the most important thing. It's something that you know, economists talk about, but buildings can be rebuilt and even communities can be rebuilt if there's a will there to do it. And there are some famous parts of Lebanon which the museums of the resistance and areas and hotels that have been rebuilt from the stones of villages that were destroyed. There's a museum in Qiam in the south where... The Israelis had a, an infamous torture prison, which is now a site of commemoration and so on. So the Lebanese people, are they're an industrious people and they have been able to rebuild a lot, but they face this constant destabilization from Israel and really one of the reasons why Hezbollah has such a great domestic support, they really have in numbers, they're not that big in Lebanese terms, but there is a, as I said, this wider coalition, which recognises the role of the resistance in driving out the Israelis and, and preventing that further annexation of territory there. So there has been rebuilding. Uh, unfortunately, because the state is so weak and divided, there's not very strong public infrastructure. In a way that you have quite shocking, really, to see how better equipped Syria is by having, say, a public health system, a public education system. A lot of those facilities don't exist in Lebanon. It's been privatized for a long time. And the solutions, uh, this sectarian system creates these problems. Say, for example, they had a problem with the garbage a couple of years ago, or collecting the garbage, and there was a strike, and it wasn't being collected. And in the end, the solution to this terrible problem, because it stank. You know, it stank the whole, of, the whole of Beirut from garbage not being collected. The solution was to create a business so that the business leaders of all of the communities, the Druze and the Christians and the, the Shia and the Sunni and so on, would all make some money out of this. That's the privatized sort of solutions that have been happening in Lebanon. It's not very satisfactory. You can't run a, a country. You can't have decent social infrastructure if you are privatized in sectarian ways. But as I say, keeping people divided is something that was intended by the French and by the British in that region so it's quite successful in in their terms to have these weak states.
0: How would you judge the impact of the Syrian conflict on Lebanon?
4: It had a huge impact and now also the financial crisis in Lebanon had an impact on Syria I mean effectively they're very close neighbors they've had very different systems for the last 70 odd years but basically there's very close relations. I I remember I was in, last year I was in Malula, the famous old Christian village um, from the first century AD. The priest there was saying that first of all back in 2006 when Israel invaded southern Lebanon there were many refugees in Syria. He gave a number, I can't remember what it was, but there were several dozen Muslim refugees that were taken into this Christian village and sheltered there for six months and he later on got a letter from Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, thanking the Malula community for looking after Lebanese citizens. Later on in 2014, when one of the Al-Qaeda gangs, Jabhat al-Nusra, invaded and destroyed parts of Malula and and the Christian heritage there, this priest made the point of saying it was Hezbollah, which because Malula is close to the border of Lebanon, so it was Hezbollah, it was mainly Muslims that defended this Christian village. So there are these very close relationships between Muslim and Christian communities there which go back a very, very long way. And you had many, many refugees from the south of Lebanon going into Syria and being taken into Syrian homes during that uh, Israeli invasion. And then later on you had this huge inflow of refugees from Syria when the al-Qaeda gangs went into particularly the parts of western syria into lebanon and still quite a lot there they've been going back gradually for the last few years since syria has been prevailing there and that created a lot of problems because lebanon being such a small place and syria is a much bigger country much bigger population you know to have a couple of million syrians in a country which only has four or five million lebanese is a huge impost you know so it's created a lot of tensions there but anyway, there are these historic relations. You know, as Lynn say, you know, you don't get to choose your neighbours. You know, they have to find some way of living with the United States which is huge and hostile but it's only, you know, seventy miles away. So similar with Lebanon and Syria, but they share a lot more culture, Lebanon and Syria. Are
0: there more than one reason why there is the economic collapse at the moment?
4: Yes, there is. One is that Lebanon was very vulnerable, was always very vulnerable to shocks, to outside shocks and to pressures you know, you might have seen at the moment that the current uh, Lebanese Prime Minister Hassan Diab has been under serious pressure from the French because there was rumours that he was going to sack the Governor of the Central Bank who has a a huge sort of shadowy type of power in the system now. There's a great deal of resentment, for example, about the fact that very rich people are able to move their money in and out of the country, but ordinary people aren't able to get any U.S. dollars out of the ATMs as they used to, and there's been huge depreciation of the currency. So France has really been trying to keep that central bank governor there in place. So there's still this, you know, outside intervention on a little country which – makes it difficult for Lebanon to take its own decisions. But another thing we have to remember here, and this is probably one of the most decisive factors, is that the wars that are going on in the region, there's about eight wars that have been going on. I call them the new Middle East wars, you know, in the, in the last two decades, in the 21st century. They include Lebanon too. They include Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, Palestine. These countries are under economic sanction from the U.S. or economic siege directly because there's this campaign to destroy independent political will in the region. The sanctions in Lebanon came in against Hezbollah, but it's not like there is a sanction just against this organization. It's anyone who's suspected of being involved with that organization. And if the outside powers, if the North Americans and the French, have their man in the central bank who can shut down certain financial operations. That's the way they want it. But effectively, the partial sanctions against Lebanon and against Iraq, I might like, say, because it's similar with Iraq, but there are certain organizations that the US doesn't like because they're independent from their control. So there are these partial sanctions on Iraq and on Lebanon, which effectively can undermine the economy at the drop of a hat. Plus the fact that Lebanon has the US had the US dollar as a type of second currency. Well, the US can easily manipulate countries that have the US dollar as their currency. It's really in context of this war to maintain states like Saudi Arabia and Israel as the foothold for the big powers there and to destroy independent political. will. it's come to Lebanon too. Lebanon and Syria helped each other economically in the past. Lebanon was a conduit also for foreign currency into Syria. You know, the, the US knows that. It's really... The context of this regional war that has been the root of undermining the Lebanese economy. And and Lebanon now is in a terrible state. They're facing serious problems of hunger. They're worse off in many respects than Syria despite the almost 10 years of war in Syria because they simply don't have the public infrastructure. They haven't got a strong government which can subsidize bread and provide public services and, and a public health system for people. It's much more critical to have money in Lebanon. So Lebanon is really going through a terrible financial and economic crisis at the moment.
0: And a reliable health system is so important at the time of the coronavirus.
4: Extremely important. Well, as it happens, on that count, and also because the one ministry that has full of controls in Lebanon is the health ministry, they're actually doing better than you might expect, and Syria too. Syria and Lebanon have have taken some precautionary measures, the standard measures of testing, tracing and and doing that social distancing to try and prevent the spread and they've been quite successful, more successful than Iran for example and Iran has a a good public health system but uh, as it happens Lebanon has been spared a lot of that at the moment and they're starting to come out of the the fairly tight restrictions there.
0: Well you can say I suppose Tim that, that Lebanon's been through an awful lot in the last century or so and they will continue on
4: yeah that's what people do like we're we're human beings we're like ants you know people come and destroy the nest and kick over the nest and try and we rebuild the nest there because you have to because we're social creatures and the Lebanese it's true they've been survivors but they still face a lot of challenges and and the root of the challenges are really that there was this awful sectarian system created by the French to divide the Lebanese from Syria and to divide the Lebanese amongst themselves and of course that works to the advantage of the the outside powers and their agents in the region thanks tim thanks Jan.
0: you've been listening to dr tim addison with a history and the present of lebanon
2: you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am visit the 3cr website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward
0: streaming to listen live. On the program last week, Dr Luke Fletcher, CEO of Jubilee Australia Research Centre, talked about moves to end crippling debt repayment by low-income countries at this time of health crisis. Another pressing issue is the proposed Frida River Mine which a civil society organisation, Project CPIC in PNG, has called for a rejection saying that the environmental impact statement is unfit for purpose. I asked Luke to explain what the proposed mine is and where it will impact.
5: Yeah, so the CPIC River is, is one of the great rivers um, in our region. It's uh, it's on the north part of Papua New Guinea, like we're up in the provinces that are kind of facing north towards Asia and it's home to about sort of 100,000 people live on the river and about 400,000 people live on the catchment area and it's been relatively relatively untouched by industrial activity so the the river's in, in, in pretty good shape and it's it's a very unique place and it's, it's a, um, a very special ecosystem the risk that this mine poses is that the tributary, the mine, the proposed mine would sit on a tributary to the Frida River mine, it's called, the Frida River runs into the sipik, and the the risk that we have, or this number of risks that are posed by the mine, essentially the greatest risk is that uh, any sort of failure of, or problems with the storage of all of the mine waste, or what we call the tailings, is going to leak down down the Frida River into the Seepik River and really potentially destroy that river in the way that we've seen other rivers in PNG destroy by inadequate planning for for this sort of problem. So this is the biggest, would be the biggest mine in the history of of PNG, would be potentially the the eighth biggest copper mine in the world and the fifth biggest gold mine. But the risks really outweigh the benefits because there's such a huge amount of waste that would be... Produced by the mine, it's it's almost impossible to see how that waste could be stored safely in a tailings facility without it leaking into the environment. Even without a catastrophic collapse, it's such a highly, it's high rainfall. There's such a high seismic activity, and there's such a huge amount of waste we're talking about. It's right up in the mountains, a very precarious position. That the we we've always suspected that there'd really be no way of of safely and securely storing those those tailings, and That has been demonstrated to us by the EIS, the Environmental Impact Statement, which is extremely poor in any attempt to propose a solution to that that's going to be workable to that problem. So, yeah, that's why we and and our partners in PNG have, have called for the EIS to be rejected.
0: What import to this have the local landowners had?
5: Well, that's been one of the problems is that the consultations with the, the the people who live along the river, um, the CPIC River, downstream from the mine, generally speaking, are opposed to it. But because, and then this is what our our partners, Project CPIC, have identified, because the mining company wants the mine to, to go ahead no matter what, it can't really properly consult the people because the people will say no. And in some cases, even the people themselves have deliberately not engage with the mining company because they didn't want to be used as sort of pawns where there's sort of some sort of fake consultations happening on sort of paper consultations that aren't real consultations and they haven't even wanted to talk to the mining company because they've been worried that that might be used as justification evidence that they've been consulted. Essentially, they don't want the mine, the, the communities living on the river, and that the company is, is really unable to wrestle with that because that's inconsistent with its, with its plans, to go ahead and, and develop this resource. So that's a huge problem, the lack of consent and really the lack of any possibility of consent because the answer is already no. The people have already, they've already seen the impact of the logging and the logging boats have had on their river and it's already changed, reducing the number of fish and changing the ecosystem and affecting their livelihoods and the mine would be much, much worse than the small amount of logging traffic. So they're already against it. They don't want it to
0: What's the history
5: of this mine and who are they? So it was an Australian company, it's, it's a long history, it's, it's, been, it's known that there's this resource around Frida River for decades. Uh, initially it was Swiss uh, Extrata which first of all sort of got to the point where they developed a plan, a sort of a, a feasible plan for 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 that but then that essentially, that was about 10 years ago. That the Strata development sort of fell through, and then it was acquired by a couple of Australian companies, Panost and um, a group called Highlands Pacific, which were mainly Australian owned companies based in, as Panost is based down in Brisbane, and then about three or four years ago, Panost was completely bought out by a Chinese state owned enterprise which was um, associated with the Guangdong province in China, if the state government owned the company, right? So the company is still based in Australia and has lots of Australian staff, but it's it's Chinese and it's now Chinese-owned. This raises a whole lot of questions in PNG, of course, around what geopolitical influence in the region and and sort of there's a bit of a tussle going on in PNG between Western powers and China for control of resources and, and sort of access to geostrategic locations and certainly the CPIC provinces are very geostrategic so there's, there's questions about whether this is really just part of a larger power play by by China to gain sort of access to and control of this area. So yeah, there's a lot of issues with this particular project and um, but just the size of it is just massive. It, it would be bigger than all of the other mines in PNG that are operating so just the scale of it is sort of unimaginable.
0: What's the PNG government's position?
5: Uh, that's a very good question. There certainly are a lot of proponents within the government. They believe, I think with probably dubious evidence, that it would be a potential solution to their foreign exchange issues that they're having at the moment, although there's not much evidence in the history of PNG that these big mines have really, really benefited PNG in the long run. Um, but certainly there is some interest, but there's also some criticism as well and some sceptics too. So I think we'll, it'll be interesting to see over the next month how that tussle plays out in PNG and, and where the government ends up. Because there's a sort of process for approving or not the environmental application, and then there's a, there's a process for giving a mining lease out but their processes are quite political so the position taken by the government and, and you know, the cabinet or what they call the National Executive Committee up there is going to be pretty important we think in, in whether the mine gets approved or not.
0: What's the next step then? Because as everyone knows P&G had a disastrous impact on the people over many decades.
5: Well I mean The the way that we've been looking at it um, with our partners, AidWatch and Project Subic, is that if you just look at the environmental impact statement, it's it's absolutely unfit for purpose. It hasn't demonstrated there's a secure way of storing the tailings and um, the the EIS is missing critical reports of information and so it's it's really just a simple question, the EIS is, is completely insufficient. And therefore, has to be rejected. That's the only. That's it's just a really straight. You don't really have to get into all these other questions. Attempt by the company to demonstrate that this is a, this A is able to be done safely in an environment in an environmental safe way has they had the chance and they've they've failed it. And we've had ten different experts look at the EIS and and for different aspects of it. And you can see the all of the expert reports on the on the on the Save the CPIC website org and so if you go and see it for yourself but the, the independent experts have demonstrated that this mine um, cannot be done safely. So there's really only one thing that, that the government should do which is reject the application. And whether that will happen or not, well that is partly dependent on public support so if people are interested they should absolutely go to the Save the CEPIC website and sign the petition to CEPIC which is the PNG Environmental authority we're planning to give the all of the all the that sends an email to sepa but we're also plan- compiling you know we've got over two thousand signatures already so we will send that we'll find some way of communicating all those signatures directly to to sepa and that's, so that's really what, that's, and the other thing is if you, there's other ways to support the campaign, the Save the CPIC campaign, both, uh, you know, to, to sign up for the mailing list, there's, we're certainly taking donations because we're, you know, small organisations trying to <laughs> fight a big fight here, so that's another way to get involved. So please, um please, I would just encourage people to go to look at the, uh, the Save the CPIC website and you can find out how you can, you can be, um engaged.
0: Just finally, Luke, what's the Mm. legal status
5: of an EIS? It's similar to what would happen in Australia where you need an environmental permit before you're able to do a big development. So if you remember, there was a lot of controversy over the Adani development and the impact that the Adani mine would have on the environment. And it was up to the Queensland regulator to sort of make an assessment about whether that was safe and there was a big debate about that. It's the same process in PNG. They have a... In theory, what is an independent body that makes the um, assessment about? It receives the AS from the company, and then it makes the assessment about whether the EIS is is able to tick all the boxes that they need to tick. But as we know, these things are they might be in theory independent, but they're actually quite political, right? So there can be political pressure by elected representatives swaying, on pressuring these entities to approve or not approve. And I mean, they can be challenged legally if there's legal reason to challenge whether the EIS's approval was, you know, dodgy or problematic. But um, really the best way, the most effective way of preventing this sort of happening is is a lot of public pressure. So that's where, you know, things like a petition and other sort of types of active involvement and conversations, either online or other types of engagements are really important.
0: Thanks very much. That's Okay. I've been speaking with Dr. Luke Fletcher, who's the CEO of Jubilee Australia Research Centre. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthew.3cr.org.au.